Hi everyone, welcome to Polis Pandit. I'm your host, Logan Stone. I'm excited to have you join me today for the inaugural episode where our mission is to inspire people to think differently. Now, most of the videos on this channel and through this podcast, they're going to focus on what I love most, and that's books. And I hope you love them too, because there's no more powerful and beautiful thing than consuming new knowledge, thinking about the world, questioning our existence, and just generally philosophizing and consuming new information. So that's what this channel is primarily going to be about, although we will study various other uh, political, legal, and historical topics, cultural uh, touch points as well. We're going to try to make it interesting. So I hope you'll tag along, hit subscribe, follow along. And if you like this video, please give us a like uh, and let us know that uh, you know you have positive feedback. If you have negative feedback, let me know too in the comments. Um, always happy to learn and try to make this better and more informative. So without further ado, the topic on today's inaugural episode is uh, a book written by one of my heroes, Anthony Bourdain, who tragically passed away in 2018. And honestly, I feel like the world has missed him severely ever since. Someone with that much of an open mind to want to see every culture, every corner of the world, and learn about people through his favorite vehicle, food. Kitchen Confidential shows his passion for food and his passion for the craft of making beautiful food and beautiful, simple plates that people enjoy and will remember forever. So without further ado then, let's get started. So let's first start on what the overall takeaway is from this book. Most people, when they read this book, whether it was 20 years ago or recently, what shocked them the most was how Bourdain unveiled the curtain on the restaurant business at large. People like myself who are outside of the industry, who have never really worked in a true commercial professional kitchen, frankly, many of them were shocked that, say for example, you know, you shouldn't order fish on a Monday because the chef ordered that fish and received it probably on Thursday. So anything that was left over from the weekend that someone, a diner didn't order, you know, you're stuck with that old fish on Monday. It's probably not going to be as fresh. They're probably going to do something to jazz it up, to, to make it taste better, to hide any, uh, you know, foul odor or whatnot from it being old for it sitting out too long. Um, something like that. Uh, or the, the other classic example that he gives is bread. How if bread isn't consumed by one customer, it likely could be used for subsequent customers. So that bread on your table, you know, buyer beware. Uh, eat, eat at your own risk and desire uh, is all I'll say. Um, these are little tidbits and nuggets of wisdom that surprise a lot of people, quite frankly. And yeah, they did surprise me too, but that wasn't my main takeaway from this book. My biggest takeaway, what I think is most valuable for anybody, um, and why everybody, I think, should read this book, is because it really puts you in the shoes of a cook. Not a chef, not the Tom Colicchios, or the Eric Repairs, Tom Douglas, or any of the big, big names out there. 
they're, you know, kind of in the stratosphere. I'm talking about the cook, the guy at the saute station, the guy manning the grill, the, um, or, or, you know, women too. Let's, uh, you know, not forget that there are many, there's many women, far less than men, but many women that still work in, in kitchens. Uh, Tony actually in the book, uh, talks a lot about, uh, this woman who went by the name of grill bitch. Um, that was her code name, but, um, there are a lot of good anecdotes about, uh, the, the cooks in this book and how much Tony reveres them how he thinks that cooks rule. That's how he, you know, he wrote this book for the cooks. Uh, he makes that very clear in in the preface and throughout the book. And in fact, he didn't actually think that it would sell very well. Um, he was just trying to get a few laughs from some of his friends. And he thought that the stories and the struggle and the pain that he wrote about would primarily resonate with them when in fact him unveiling pulling back the curtain and writing in such a raw and intense manner with such vivid detail in every scene. Um, it really, it resonated with the public at large. Although, you know, the cooks that read it obviously really enjoyed it too. But I think that's the most valuable thing about this book is its ability to transport you to a lifestyle that you may not have any understanding of. I, I mean, I certainly did it. My personal experience, the closest I come to the restaurant industry is working as a sandwich artist at Subway. Yes, I, I mean, that's, a, that's an actual term. They, they refer to these uh, employees as sandwich artists who work the line at Subway. But working the line at Subway, totally different from working, say, a saute station at, you know, a French brasserie in Midtown Manhattan. Very different. Um, I understand that, but that's the closest I came in. Also, a service deli stint where I, I manned a fryer and I carved up some meat every once in a while. But you know, nothing of that nature compares or holds a candle to some of the anecdotes and stories that Tony regales us with in this book. My next big takeaway from this book is how Tony describes himself as a pirate ship captain. I mentioned celebrity chefs a minute ago. And it's quite clear from how he writes that he doesn't see himself, and he actually has a lot of disdain when he's writing this book for celebrity chef culture. There's a lot of shade thrown at guys like Emeril Lagasse. Remember the Bam guy? Uh, he's, you know, uh, critical of Bobby Flay. Some of the big names that were uh, really prominent on Food Network, which was, you know, for the youngsters out there. Uh, that was really how we learned about celebrity chefs, how chefs took off into this celebrity stardom uh, back in the 2000s and late 90s. But Tony kind of frowned upon all of that, which is ironic because he ended up becoming one of those celebrity chefs, not necessarily through his cooking, but through the writing through his books like this uh, primarily, and then through all the travel documentarian uh, work that he did for No Reservations, Cook's Tour, and of course uh, his, his last project, which was Parts Unknown on CNN. So I would just say though that he's anything but a celebrity chef in the true sense of the word, because you know he even acknowledges throughout the book 
he was never an Eric Repair or a fine dining chef. Uh, p- potentially, he could have been, but he never moved uh, for, and he, he describes it this way, where he never moved for the right jobs at the time. He was always looking for the paycheck. He was always looking for the next payday. Um, because quite frankly, he had a big drug drug problem, uh, and he needed to pay for all the drugs. So he he needed a way to to fund his lifestyle, and that honestly probably led him down a path where he wasn't mentored by you know the best and brightest, like a, a chef who he talks a lot about. This guy Scott Bryan, who was mentored uh, in his early days and went through the whole process of like working in France and. You know, going through all the motions uh, that one would need in order to become the chef of a three-star Michelin restaurant. Tony didn't do any of that. Uh, he worked at two- and three-star joints for sure, but he never had, like, the pedigree or the trajectory that some of, you know, these classical, classically trained chefs had. He, he went uh, a, a grungier route, should we say, and... Quite frankly, I think he liked that more. I don't think he would have been happy had he been working at a place like 11 Madison Park his whole life. He wanted to be working at a, a brasserie, making working-class food, but making it with flair to perfection and with integrity. And that, you, One thing you can't... You can say many things about Bourdain, but one thing you cannot question is the man's authenticity, and that comes out very vividly and clearly throughout the course of this book. One of my favorite aspects of the book is its organization. It's organized like a menu. So the first few chapters are part of the appetizer. Well, he first starts with a chef's note, which is wonderful. It makes me feel like I'm dining at a really nice establishment. You know, you get a note from the chef telling you kind of the theme of of the menu, where we're headed, what to expect for the evening. The book is laid out in almost the same way, which is marvelous. So you get the note from the chef, you start with your appetizer course, then you go into your first course, your second, your third, dessert, and then he ends with something that I I got a big kick out of, a coffee and a cigarette. I mean, how punk rock is that? This guy, uh, you know, he, <laughs> which just goes to my point about 11 Madison Park, about fine dining establishments, you know, nobody at those types of places would, would even dare say, all right, let's, let's end this beautiful meal with a coffee and a cigarette. But there's honestly, arguably few better ways to end a really good meal little nicotine buzz and uh, a nice cup of joe. So, uh, he, And that's where he gets real, too, in that section. He talks about what it really takes to be a chef. And, you know, you've read my whole book now. Do you still really want to do this for all you, you folks out there that aspire to work in this industry? Think long and hard about it. And he goes into grave detail and really breaks it down. It's dirty. It's, it's true. And it's real. And that's, that's the coffee and the cigarette time. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful chapter and uh, was one of my favorite parts. Uh, while much of the book does regale you with anecdotes and funny stories about 
Tony's life. It, it tracks his experiences in France. Uh, his friend, his family is French uh, in origin. They immigrated from there. I, I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly how long ago, but his father, I think, had a strong connection still to France and would take the family there to spend summers. And Tony had great times uh, aboard like the Queen Mary, where he tasted his first cold soup. Didn't know that soup was actually served cold in some places. Had his mind blown. Knew that there was more out there about food that he didn't know. Had his first oyster, which was an incredible description. Uh, It reminded me of one of my other favorite food writers, MFK Fisher. She was one of the original food writers. Uh, She wrote this book called Gastronomical Me, which I really enjoyed. And one of my favorite chapters in that book was about MFK Fisher's first oyster and how it was this magical, vibrant experience. Um, I was just shaking myself that I couldn't actually remember the first time I ever had an oyster. Although I'm sure it was great, but you know, I didn't have this sensory experience where you know it, it's ingrained in your mind like a childhood memory uh, that you might otherwise have. But it's kind of sad. But you know, I'm still in love with oysters today. Maybe I didn't like it. Maybe that's why I didn't remember. But if you remember your first oyster experience, put it in the comments. I'd, I'd be interested to hear. So while he mainly tells stories and chronicles his life throughout the culinary industry, how he started, um, his experiences at CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, his experiences in Provincetown, Massachusetts, all throughout Manhattan, at at different places, uh, one of the best parts actually is a very practical section called How to Cook Like the Pros. And he breaks down all the basics that any aspiring chef or or home chef, actually, who wants to improve their skills, everything that they need. So number one is a good knife, which makes sense. Um, it's amazing how many home chefs don't even have a solid knife to cut with. The two parts of the book, though, that most resonated with me were first his discussion of his mentor, Bigfoot. He dedicates a whole chapter to Bigfoot. And second, a day in the life where he runs through a typical day for him as the head chef at Le Halls. And it's so vivid and excruciatingly painful uh, to witness everything that comes up throughout the course of the day, how his day starts bright and early, and how it ends really late. Um, But first, turning to Bigfoot, Bigfoot is considered uh, by many to be Andy Menschel, who's a West Village legend in the culinary scene. I think he passed away a few years ago, but the the guy, by almost all accounts, was uh, kind of a sadist and, you know, depended on what type of relationship he had with him. But um, by and large, though, for as many negative traits as he had, he also taught Tony a lot of things about the restaurant business. And he was the type of person who you would trust going into the restaurant business. Uh, one of Tony's biggest criticisms about people is that they go into the restaurant industry for all the wrong reasons. If they're trying to own a restaurant, that is. Because 
quite frankly, it, it's a horrible investment. And Tony's the first one to admit that. But a guy like Bigfoot was perfect to own a restaurant because he was incredibly detail-oriented and just vicious with people. If a purveyor, like his meat purveyor, uh, was uh, charging Peter Luger's, for example, a big uh, steakhouse in, um, in Brooklyn, if, it, if they were charging Peter Luger's less for meat than Bigfoot, Bigfoot would find out and he would make sure that that purveyor was basically boycotted by many other people. And he would work these purveyors against each other, driving their price down. He used a lot of tactics that Tony goes into a lot more detail in the book on. Um, but that's not the reason why Tony necessarily adored this guy or um, had a love-hate relationship, I should say, uh, with him. Um, the biggest thing that Tony took away, it seemed, from the book was that it wasn't necessarily about skills when you were looking to find employees, to find cooks for your kitchen. It was more about character. That, And I think this applies to any industry, any any field or craft, whatever line of work you're in, think to yourself, like, what would you prefer? Would you prefer somebody with integrity at your job or somebody with great skills? And I think the, the main thing is, is that skills can be taught. Skills can be learned. But integrity, character, honesty, these are things that are relatively innate with people. I mean, sure, you know, you can learn bad habits throughout the course of your life. But once you have those habits, once you've learned that you can maybe get away with lying or telling a white lie here and there, you're likely to repeat that over and over again. And Bigfoot was somebody who really instilled that in Tony to hire people with great character and, you know, forget about their skills. Skills would come, you could train them, but character was paramount. And I really think that that's a fantastic way to to go about looking for employees. Second, uh, within that story of Bigfoot was gathering intelligence. Bigfoot, as I said, with purveyors, you know, he'd find out if somebody was undercutting him or giving a better price to somebody else. He also did that within his own restaurant. He would always find out what the gossip was, who was backstabbing whom, who was out to get him. He was constantly paranoid and trying to get the dirt on everybody so that maybe one day he could use it against them. And Tony, for better or worse, it seemed, employed many of those same tactics and methods when he ran La Halls and at other restaurants that where he was given the top job. And I think, honestly, if a lot of people criticize gossip, but there are great benefits to gossip. And in fact, uh, the book Sapiens uh, by Yuval Noah Harari, he talks about how gossip helped humans evolve in a way that um, distinguished us from many other, um, actually it was Homo sapiens specifically, made Homo sapiens evolve more so than other species of humans. Uh, so gossip has its benefits, and I think uh, Tony learned that from Bigfoot. But turning now to the chapter on A Day in the Life, when you read that chapter, you are put in Tony's shoes for the day when he wakes up early in the morning with a cigarette, of course, and you know his first thoughts are, 
you know, how he's going to execute that day, how he's going to stock his kitchen properly, what he, the first moves he's going to make and no moves are wasted. You don't have time. You don't have time in a restaurant to, to worry, to even stop and think or really philosophize for a second. Um, it's so fast paced, especially in these New York city kitchens. And I was exhausted, honestly, just by the end of reading this chapter. But if there's any chapter that really puts you in the shoes of a cook to understand the intensity, to understand the difficulty and the, the trauma and the drama that they go through on a daily basis, it's that chapter. It's powerful, man. I mean, it is unbelievable how powerful it is. And I, you know, I've, I've worked jobs on trading floors. Uh, at Subway, as I mentioned, but nothing, in my opinion, quite compared to uh, a day in the life of a cook. So I'm going to end here with love, industry love. That's what Tony was all about. He just adored this industry, the culinary world, and that's why he ended up using food really as a vehicle, I think, to understand and meet other people and appreciate their cultures in his later life of being a travel documentarian he showed us that food can be a portal to understanding other people and to overcoming our differences and things that made us different from one another but uh, at the end of the day many of us are very similar and i mean you just see that from like basic examples of food like the tortellini, and it's very similar to a dumpling, you know, but very different cultures have, have, uh, and many different cultures actually have dumplings, but specifically like an Asian dumpling, very similar to a tortellini. There are just similarities across food and across the world that show that, you know, while there are many unique, beautiful things in the world, so much of it is, is related and we're not all that different from one another, but Food is a great way to bring people together, to help people to understand different cultures, and to travel when you know you're you're not able to travel, whether it's in the middle of a pandemic or or whatnot. It's kind of like drinking that uh, that nice bottle of, uh, of of French Bordeaux, and you feel like you're you're you might be transported to uh, a chateau in the south of France, um, but. That's the, the, the big theme for me throughout this whole book is love of cooks, love of food, love of the uh, culinary industry. And one thing I want to leave all of you with, which I ended my uh, related article that I wrote on this book, um, reviewing it, was with this quote that came toward uh, the end of the book. It's a long one, so I'll post it here. But he starts off by saying, how much longer am I going to do this? I don't know. I love it, you see. I love heating duck confit, saucisson de canard, confit gizzards, saucisson de toulou, apologies if I'm butchering the French, by the way, poutrine and duck fat with those wonderful tarbay beans, spooning it into an earthenware crock and sprinkling it with breadcrumbs. I love making those little mountains of chive mashed potatoes, wild mushrooms, riz de veau, a nice tall green, tall microgreen salad as garnish, drizzling a perfectly reduced sauce around the plate with my favorite spoon. I enjoy the look on the face of my boss when I do a pot au feu special. 
the look of sheer delight as he takes the massive bowl of braised hooves, shoulders, and tails in, the simple boiled turnips, potatoes, and carrots looking just right, just the way it should be. I love that look, as I love the look on Pino's face when he gazed upon a perfect bowl of spaghetti a la Shatara, the same look I get when I approach a Scott Bryan daub of beef, a plate of perfect oysters. It's a gaze of wonder, the same look you see on a small on small children's faces when their fathers take them into deep water at the beach, and it's always a beautiful thing. For a moment, or a second, the pinched expressions of the cynical, world-weary, throat-cutting, miserable bastards we've all had to become disappears when we're confronted with something as simple as a plate of food, when we remember what it was that moved us down this road in the first place. That's love. So in conclusion, I would say, don't wait as long as I did to read this book. I waited over a decade, and it's something I, I regret um, ha- not having had this knowledge of this book in my life when Anthony uh, Bourdain was alive. But it's one of the best pieces of food writing. I'd put it right up there with MFK Fisher's A Gastronomical Me. I think it's uh, uh, just a seminal piece. Uh, as If anybody wants to write a food memoir, it's going to be judged against this book and you know i think bourdain really took the style of a hunter s thompson a jonathan swift and transported it into the 21st century and into the culinary world and it's something it's a very unique style and take and i think honestly it's it's the perfect memoir uh for for the culinary industry which is why I give this book a perfect 10 out of 10. So there you have it, my friends. Uh, Thanks for listening. Please give us a like if uh, you enjoyed this review, and I hope to see you on the next video. Bye.